This podcast is brought to you by Upcase. Improve your development skills by completing coding exercises that are peer-reviewed by real humans. Learn more at Upcase.com. How you feeling? You're wearing your Bumgarner shirt? Yep. There it is. It's a good shirt. It's a good Bum shirt. Bumgarner. Garner. Whatever. Not There's Gardner. no D? No. That was my biggest pet peeve with um, Harold Reynolds during the World Series. Saying Gardener? He was saying Bumgarner for seven games. <laughs> It's a weird it's just a it's a weird last name. Yeah. Hey everybody, this is Mark in San Francisco. And this is Gordon in Boston. And this is Build Phase. This what's up? How are uh, you doing? Related to that. Bumgarner threw fifty three innings in the course of the World Series. Yeah. Wait a minute. No, that's not right. No, in the course of the postseason. Mm-hmm. That's ridiculous. Yeah. He threw 270 overall mm-hmm. the whole, in the whole season. 270 and innings. 270 innings. And, and, and then another 20% of those were just in the one month of postseason. <laughs> wow. They used him a lot. <laughs> That's incredible. I mean, good. <laughs> he's good. Well, not good for this year. Oh, because he's going to be all beat well, up. That's wor- that, yeah. That's worrisome. Did you guys get a Vogel whatever? Apparently they came to an agreement pending a physical, which he's going to take today. Cool. Which is interesting because that would give us a sixth starter. We, we, were, we were in the same position. where When we were looking at him, everything I was reading was like, this is like now we're looking at a six-man rotation. I, I think for us it's – depth for safety because two of our starters are coming off of surgeries this season mm-hmm. so matt kane left early last year to have bone spurs removed from his elbow and tim hudson had bone spurs removed from his ankle in mm-hmm. the offseason mm-hmm. and they're supposed to be ready but it's like we don't really know like where they're going to be at you know so yeah ha- having having vogie in the bullpen potentially available to start is good yeah and petite still have petite just kind of hanging around sure yeah can't wait. We'll have to continue this on our new podcast that we haven't started yet. <laughs> yeah. We're playing an expedi- uh, what's it called? Exhibition. 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 We're playing an exhibition game soon. Like in a month or two. Before spring training? I think so. Hold on. Yeah, I thought it said it was like in 70 days or something like that. Hmm. Oh, we're playing um we're playing one of our farm teams. Is what it is. We're playing the Hooks, our double A in April. So it's a little further away than I thought. Double A, huh? That yeah. should be a good old fashioned <laughs> walloping. <laughs> I know. I know. But I think that's where um, Mark Apple, I think that's how you pronounce his last name, but our, our like ace prospect pitcher that <laughs> I don't know what it's like on other teams, but like we have such a deep farm system and like for years we've had like the best farm system in the majors rate ratings wise you know for the you know i i'm constantly hearing about all of our prospects or specific ones carlos correa in uh in our triple a wait which way does it go i know he's class a advanced. yeah yeah class a advanced um and then apple in our double a 
is this deep farm system like a new thing and it's just taking time? Like it takes like five years, right? To like move someone through the farm system yeah, and you're it, just now starting to like reap mm-hmm, the, the benefits mm-hmm. of this good system. George Springer was part of that. Um, John Singleton was part of that. Uh, I don't know who else was, but uh, yeah, it, it was it was like literally like a five, six year plan that the Astros have been in where it's like – it's one of the reasons that last year was exciting for me because it was – starting to really see all of the um you know some of these these it, it, we've been shitty for so long and starting to, last season starting to see kind of glimpses of what the future is going to be like and glimpses of these guys that are going to be really really good um it's a lot of fun and so yeah so like this year, actually, it's weird in the offseason. This year, we've been focusing a lot on actually getting major league talent, and we've sent away some of our prospects for that. Like that dude, Fulton Evich, who I was talking about last year, he has like a hundred, you know, 100, 100 plus mile an hour fastball. It's like, dude's ridiculous. Um, his first four pitches were like 499 mile an hour strikes or something like that. It's like, good lord. <laughs> uh, but like, we, we just sent him off. To the Cubs, I think. Man, the Cubs are yeah. are stocking up. Mm-hmm. Like they're going to make a run. Mm-hmm. It's really scary, and and they they're in they're in kind of the same situation where they have like a huge farm system with all this developing talent that's just not ready to go yet. But you started to see that like last year. I think they called up um, that like Javier Baez hit a home run in his first major league game. Mm-hmm. Like, love to see that. <laughs> Yeah, especially if you're a Cubs fan, take whatever you can get. We must have a Cubs fan that's like a listener on this show. <laughs> we should just have them on. Yeah. Anyway, what you been doing this week? Well, same as last week. Still working on that weather app. Man, Reactive Cocoa. Yeah, you're just getting deeper and deeper. You're talking about just error signals and merge and. Like I haven't been this excited to program in a long time. Wow. I think it's because I just got so tired of implementing table views. Yes. Over and over. Yes. That it, it's finally something new where I can just declare how my system works in one place and then just like throw input at it and watch it go. So I think a question I've had with Reactive Cocoa from the outside, not using it, and and something that I've been unsure about is that like I like the architecture that we tend to use. I just notice these pain points in using the architecture. And I think one of my concerns with reactive cocoa has been that it's going to force me into an architecture that I don't like as much just to be able to use this system. I have no idea if that's grounded in reality, but do you know what I mean? Like I, I get concerned about getting forced away from more object oriented. I know last week I was talking about how I'm less interested in OO design patterns, but I still think there's value in OO design patterns. And I still think there's value in like single responsibility principle and all these things that we've been talking about for the past year. You know what I mean? Like I'm still hundred percent behind all that. And I, my, my concern has always been that reactive cocoa was going to f- push me away from that. Is that totally unfounded? A little bit. I've acted, I mean, from someone like me who's super interested in refining architectures over and over, mm-hmm. my goal going into this was to not let Reactive Cocoa push me around. Yeah. Um, I feel like you see examples of Reactive Cocoa where it's just like a 200-line view did load. Mm-hmm. Like, no, it does not have to be that way. Right, 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 right. Also, temporary variables are fine. Like, it's totally fine to just, like, 
keep reassigning and you instead don't have of, instead of chaining. Yeah. 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 So my typical pattern has been the view did load of the view controller uses rack observe and the rack macro mm-hmm. to bind its outlets to signals. And so when you wrap something with the rack macro, you can assign a signal to it and it creates a relationship. It's not a one-time assignment. It's a, it's a relationship for the lifetime of that object where when that signal sends a next event, that value will get assigned to right. that property right, forever and ever. Then I use my view model and I just basically publicize properties that are signals that do that. And I end up with a t- bunch of internal signals just for like very small bits. And then I just keep composing them, you know, and like mapping and filtering and hmm. flattened mapping and just building them up into what I need. Hmm. And so I'm at the point where typically my view models will have properties and methods and there's not a completion block in sight because it's not necessary. Because they're just all returning values through because signals. Everything that would be communicated back in a block has already been bound up to the public interface. And then you just tell the view model, go, do something. Mm-hmm. And then you just know that like, yeah, these things are going to continue to change over time and we'll just keep updating the UI as necessary. So does that mean, are, are you saying your view models are mutable at that point? View controllers own a view model. Mm-hmm. Kind of just one view model forever, and they will have some internal state because sometimes you will just have to like hold something around mm-hmm. for a while. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't necessarily call it mutable because you're not really mutating it from the outside. Mm-hmm. I don't think of mutability as like, oh, this thing is changing its state on the inside. Like, of course it is. Like, that's how anything works. So it's changing internal state and then sending signals in response to those changes, or you're observing. Uh, well, I mean, like the outlets, the views are bound to those public signals. Mm. You know, it's the gears turning in a watch that turns the the watch hands. But you know, yeah, I wouldn't call I wouldn't call that mutable. Like, of course, something has to happen internally. Mm. I'm trying to think of a good example. Well, there's a there's a thing that I explained the other day in the in the pull request, mm-hmm. in that we oh, have yeah. we have a status string in the view that as an update is happening, it switches between a couple states. So it says like updating. And then if it fails, it says update failed or some error message. And once it succeeds, it says updated at and has a relative timestamp that shows just now for the first five seconds. And then after five seconds, it starts counting up six seconds ago, seven seconds ago, it gets to a minute. um, And it, it just keeps updating until that process begins again. So effectively there's one public signal called status that is bound to a label called status label. That's all the view controller knows about. You call update on the view model. And internally we have a couple properties. One is the update state, which is an enum, which in the three cases are what I just said, updating failed and updated. Right. Mm -hmm. And we also keep track of a last updated date. So as the update process is happening, things are finishing and we're going, okay, we're updating now, or there's an error. So we switched that state to failed. Um, we're just assigning internal properties here. When it finally succeeds, we switch it to updated. We set a last updated date to NSDate date, and that's it. Like that's all the update method does. Right. From there, we have some internal signals that are watching those properties, the updated state and the last updated date, and it's combining those together mm-hmm. into one signal. And when you combine signals, you, you can reduce them down, and you get the last signal that was sent. For every signal that's been combined. The last value that was sent for every signal. Uh, Yes. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. We'll actually say event. 
the last okay. event okay. that's sent yep. for every signal. Every time one of them changes, you get the last one from everyone, mm-hmm. which is cool. I mean... Oh, so, okay. I get it. So you don't have to hang on to that, really. So what if... How does that work if I combine... Let's go easy. I combine two signals, right? Mm-hmm. And maybe they both have uh they send a string back they're both signals of strings mm-hmm. right does that block when you so you combine them and then you reduce them so now you have a block that has two string values right string value one and string value two from signal one and signal two mm-hmm. if signal two returns a string does that block fire like only signal two returns a string or does it only fire if signal two returns a string? It doesn't fire, and then when signal one returns a string, and how is that? Now it has a value for both signals. Correct. That's Correct. how it works. A combined lattice will not send its first event until the two signals it's combining have each sent one, or every signal that is combining. Right. So you could, sure, you could yeah. do so. So so it's it has to have values for. You're never going to get in a place where, what is it? Combine latest or reduce reduce. It's, there's combined latest, which just returns a signal that's just um, that's just combined mm-hmm. that just sends the block. There's also combined latest reduce. Mm-hmm. There's another variant that lets you basically reduce those multiple events from each signal down into one value. Okay. So yeah, that was that was my main. I, I wasn't 100 percent clear on that how that would work. Every signal has to send a send an event. In order for the block to fire. Yeah. So then once the block fires, now all of a sudden you have everything you need to construct your string. Right. So as we're going through and updating the state or updating the date, each one of those changes is firing through the combined latest into the reduce. And then that reduced string is being sent back out into the label. Right. Through so, a signal. Uh, correct. That's bound using mm-hmm. the rack macro. Yep. So that, yep. that basically gets us updating the string in response to changes. Then at the point where we want to start updating it every second for the date, like we just mix in, we combine a third signal. So you can create an interval signal that acts much like a timer, and that signal sends the current date at that interval as its next event. So, you, mm-hmm. so we have like you know rack interval one, put it on a scheduler, main thread scheduler, and that will run every second. So by combining that in now, we can be sure that the combined latest is going to signal at least once per second. Mm-hmm. Because that's guaranteeing that by being mixed in. So finally, at that point, we're just sort of like building a new status string. Uh, if we have an updated date available, we'll you know, append that, do some relative date formatting, throw that on there. And so then when you're constructing that string, you have logic that says if it's within some amount of time, don't have a you know blank seconds ago thing, but then... Yeah, when we build that, it looks at the state and the last updated date. Mm -hmm. And so it goes, okay, well, if we're in the updating state, just return updating. Mm -hmm. If it's failed, return this error string. Mm -hmm. If it's in the updated state, format the date, append it, return that. So you could see that, like, that that would work totally fine, but that doesn't handle the little case where we want it to show just now for five seconds. Right. Or rather, it would, but it would, it would, assign updated just now to that label every five second. times before it actually changes right so finally on the very end of that signal oh, yeah, we just yeah. throw on a distinct until changed right which is basically doing is equal on each value passed through it mm-hmm. and if it's the same as the last one it mm-hmm. just swallows it and once it's different it finally lets that signal through 
So you're you're constructing the string every second. But I'm not saying that as a judgment. I'm just saying like you're constructing the string every segment, but that's kept internal until that string that you've constructed changes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then yeah, to change is like a dam. Yeah, like the values are building up behind it until something is different, and then it lets it through. Um, so if you actually if you log, the other great thing about Rack is that you can chain in these log commands. Hmm. It will just kind of like spit out the signal it got at that point in the chain. That's awesome. It doesn't, and it just returns itself again, so you can keep chaining off that. It doesn't affect the the subscription process or anything like that. If you actually log the output, you'll see that it it doesn't say updated just now five times. Mm -hmm. You'll see that it says updated just now, and then five seconds later, it'll It'll start start. updated six seconds ago. Mm -hmm. And then every second, you'll start getting those. Mm -hmm. You hit a minute, it doesn't keep updating unless it's changed every minute. Right. So... You could argue that it's a little inefficient that we're recalculating the string and then throwing the result away, but with a couple properties and four lines of code, like I did this thing that would in- require an insane amount of state juggling like, right. without we, it. We did something similar, like you know, we created a whole class to create a timestamp label. Remember on our last project, and it was way more code than this. You know what I mean? That just did kind of the basics of what you're talking about. But in and it did have more logic where it only updated itself every second if it was inside of a minute and then or actually it changed right so that whatever but in its first implementation it updated every second up to the first minute then it updated itself every minute then it updated itself every hour after that but that required timers and a bunch of conditional logic and checking existing state and then bouncing stuff back up and invalidating timer old timers every time it's kind of a net pain in the ass and and that decision it, it worked it was clean it was all encapsulated inside the label but you could argue that 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 putting timers inside of a label subclass is questionable it, at best you know you know yeah it, i mean it i think if i had to do it again without reactive cocoa i'd probably do that same thing like i don't i think that that was the right solution for the problem it's just an unfortunate problem. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm being pedantic, but I, I do feel like that's the job of some controller to keep updating something that's observed. Sure. Yeah, you can make that argue too, right? That, or, you know, you could just, but, uh, yeah, you could just take that code out, like literally just pick it up and drop it down and then bind it with KVO or mm-hmm. something like that. So now I'm so hooked, I'm like, rackifying everything because mm-hmm. you can basically replace every communication pattern that coco uses with rack in some way delegate patterns and yep. delegate notification target action what else is there i'm struggling those are, the, those are the big ones yep yep you can do all of that with one consistent interface that's not bad currently is, turning location manager into a rack it is nice to take all these different concepts that all have a similar you know what I mean? Like like the ones you just listed, right? Target action, um, KVO, notifications, delegates. It's all this common pattern, right? Which is like wait for – it's reactive programming. It's wait for a thing to happen. And when it does, do this other thing over here. But you have four completely different interfaces for that same concept. And it is kind of nice to just like put a wall between you and those and just be like – I'm just dealing with reactive cocoa now. I get the value in that. And if you're 
you know, if you care way more than you should, which pattern you're using right now, because there's overlap and either one would work fine. Like, and you're me, you just end up with analysis paralysis and you just sit there and go, man, I don't know. I don't know what to do. I have to pick one. Uh, I'm just gonna look at Reddit instead. Mm -hmm. Maybe it'll come to me. (laughs) Analysis paralysis is a solid band name. That'd be like my rock band band name. Analysis paralysis. Yeah. Good. And it's like, what? What should our set list be, guys? <laughs> yeah, I have no yeah, idea. You've never played a show. <laughs> oh, blocks! I'll throw blocks in there. You can. Oh, completion blocks. Yeah, so you can easily you know, blocks make it really easy to like rackify. I'm going to keep using that word sure. to like rackify. Isn't that a macro? It used to be. Oh, I think they got rid I think of it. Rackify became rack observe. Ah. Yeah, it used to be, and that's one thing. You look at sample code, and it's. They've iterated on Reactive Cocoa so quickly. It's only three or four years old that, like, there's huge breaking changes. Like, you'll see code and you're like, Rackify. Like, there's yeah. no such thing as Rackify. Like, it's Rack Observe now. Right. Well, and then the, the Swift branch is just a completely different, from my outsider, what I understand, it's a completely different path, right? Like, they've just taken the whole idea and run with it, mm-hmm. which I think is awesome. It is going to be different necessarily because of Swift's type mm-hmm. system. Um, for instance, right now, you can, because of Objective-C, you can merge two sort of um, heterogeneous signals that return different values. You can merge those right now. And the, the merged signal you get back could either give you, say, a number or a string, and it doesn't oh. matter. But I think in Swift, that's not going to work. You're only going to be able to merge homogenous signals because how do you... How do you sort of like reify that type within mm-hmm. Swift if they can be different? Like you definitely don't want to be using any object. So I think Swift is going to necessarily change the contract a little bit. That's not a bad thing. It's no, just I think that's a good used thing. To. Yeah. It's a good trade-off with the syntax. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, sure. Reactive Cocoa and Swift looks great. Does it? Yeah. Are you able to read it? Are, have, you, have you gone back and like looked at some like Carth- this Carthage source code, for example? Have you looked at that recently and... They've also changed the names of things. Mm, yeah. So I'm, I'm having a hard time there. Like, signal's the same. They have a thing called, like, a signal producer now. That doesn't exist in the Objective-C version. I'm is not that, super clear on what that is. Isn't that, like, a cold signal versus hot signal thing? That sounds familiar. Like, I may have read that a couple of days ago. I, I read through the whole work-in-progress PR yeah. on Reactive Cocoa for the Swift branch, and it was just following the discussion. And Yeah. Yeah, there is something about that. Hmm. It's exciting, man. It's it makes programming fun again because you can focus on the fun parts and not have to keep typing the boring parts. Yeah, like that's all there is to it. That's cool. I got to get into it. I really do. I was glad that I blew your mind the other day when I explained how it worked. <laughs> when, I was, when I was asking questions about that merge stuff, it's like what? Yeah, that was fun. Yeah, getting the John Stewart mind blown gift. Mm-hmm. That told me that you were at like a seven of ten on yeah. the mind blown scale. Yeah, yeah. It was just I don't know. I thought I thought it was it, like it totally makes sense to me inside like the functional part of my brain. You know what I mean? The part that's constantly wrapped up in functional programming was like, oh yeah, I recognize this. Like as a concept, I recognize this. But the <laughs> Objective C part of my brain was like, what the hell is happening? 
I have no idea how to, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I, I just couldn't, I was having a lot of trouble getting those two. Because in Swift, for me, it's much easier to see the functional stuff in Swift. Does that make sense? Like, for some, I think it's just because Swift is new enough. You know what I mean? Like, I had gotten into functional programming before Swift, so when I start seeing Swift and there's no real established patterns and there's no real, this is how I do things, and I don't have any baggage associated with it inside my head of how Swift code looks, it's easy for me to just map my functional stuff on top of, that was a functional joke, map my functional stuff on top of the Swift syntax and just be like, bam. But mm -hmm. I have so much mental baggage and, and history with objective C it's still hard for me to reconcile how objective C can be even remotely functional. Yeah. It's not really kind it kind of gives the appearance of it. Um, I mean, functional concepts, you know what I mean? Like I'm saying like map, like, you know, I've pulled it in a few times. Um, there's the RX extension or RX collections from rubrics that implements like map, and filter and stuff for arrays and dictionaries and whatnot. Um, and like you look at the source code, or like I've written that same function, that same thing a few times. It's just a wrapper for that same stupid manual iteration thing that you've done a million times. But it's nice to not have to do that manual iteration, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, n none of the rack operators are significant on their own. It's the larger architecture of rack that lets you chain things together. That really makes the big difference. Right. And combine things and reduce them down. And yeah, I think the best way to get started with reactive cocoa is step one, have an abject disgust for objective C <laughs> start there yeah. and follow the path to success and your dreams. Yeah. And another way of putting it is that like, if you consider that just vanilla Objective-C values are like points in space, mm -hmm. you know, they're just mm -hmm. like this one thing that exists in this one location at one time. Mm -hmm. um, Reactive Cocoa turns those into lines. Right. You're working with line segments now instead of just points. Mm -hmm. um, strings of points, I guess mm -hmm. you could call it. Um, once you wrap your head around that, it really helps. Like you basically just have to throw out time. Like stop thinking about time in your code and just... Right. That's the biggest problem is like trying to get away of thinking, well, is this thing here now or is this thing the right value yet? Right. doesn't care or it doesn't matter. Like stop thinking about time and just think about how your value should transform. Yeah, because you're going to react to the fact that the value is there, right? Like you're it, – it's the same thing. It, honestly, it, it, it really is a lot like optionals in Swift for me where the best thing about – for me – the, the thing that I loved most about optionals in Swift, the existence of this concept of an optional value, was that it meant that I could stop worrying about whether or not there was or wasn't something there. Every time you write an Objective-C method, you have to do that internal quick sanity check like, what if they just pass nil to this? Am I just going to blow up? You know what I mean? Like, am I smart enough to remember that this isn't going to take nil? Like. You know, you always there. There are all those places in Foundation where nil just silent, like you pass nil to something, and it silently just doesn't do what you expect. Mm -hmm. In Swift, the thing for me in Swift was not that oh, I get to declare things as optional. It was that oh, I get to declare things as not optional, right? So all of a sudden, I stop having to care about 
is this value here or not? Because it is. It will be. Whenever this function is called, I know I'm going to have a thing, and I know that that thing is going to be of that type, period. There's no question about that. And it sounds like that's the same kind of thing except for over time, right? Like in you, you know when you write this function, this method call that takes these things or when you try constructing a string, you know that you will have a value to put into that string. Mm-hmm. And even if you don't have a value now, you'll have a value eventually. Right, when you want to construct the string. Yeah, you really only have to care about, for in most cases, you really only have to care about the start state of the signal. And, you know, a signal is not really fired up until it gets its first subscriber. You know, and that could be nil. Like, you could get nil passed through, and sometimes that's fine. Like, I don't care. Do you want to set my label to nil? That's fine. I don't want it to show up anyway. If you wanted to start with a value, it's as simple as just chaining on start with into your signal and pass it a value. And it'll just be like, okay, well, I'm going to fire up, and when I'm cold, like, this is going to be the first value I send. Easy. If you anticipate that you could get nils through your chain and you don't want them to proceed instead of filtering there's just an ignore like ignore this ignore nil and nil will just get swallowed right there in the chain hmm. it's mind-blowing dude that's cool i'm kicking myself for not getting on board earlier i feel like an idiot i think you're jumping on right at the right time i really do i think yeah sure like you know this would have been useful six months ago you know it would have. Like on our last project, I feel like we were sitting there saying to ourselves the entire time, I, like we had this conversation like, you know, Reactive Cocoa could probably solve this problem for us. <laughs> you know what I mean? There were a couple of times I asked on Twitter kind of like, what do you do about this? And like Justin Spar Summers would be like, Reactive Cocoa. It's like, God damn it. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, so like, yeah, I'm sure that you know, getting into reactive cocoa six months ago would have helped. But the flip side of that is that you're also getting into it at this point where reactive cocoa, as I see it is kind of going through a transformation and is moving towards the 3.0 branch and the swift stuff. And that to me seems like a good time to jump on the bandwagon. Like you're going to be, you at least know the even if they change names and even if they change some of the syntax and even if it's a little weirder or not weirder but different because of the way Swift's type system works, you're at least going to have a grasp on the concepts that Reactive Coco is trying to solve going into the 3.0 release where you should at least have an easier time transitioning over, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Swift is just going to be great for that. For two reasons. Um, Generics. Yeah. Uh, that actually wasn't one of my reasons, but I'm going to ask you about that because okay. I'm not sure I can grok where that will fit in. Like I roughly understand generics, but uh, namespaces, number one, not having to see rack everywhere. I can just kind of ignore it. Just be like, hey, this is part of the language as far as I'm concerned. And like mm-hmm. that excites me. That doesn't actually matter like naming, but it does matter to me. Uh, the second is trailing closures. Mm-hmm. Because I am always forgetting braces on the end of my <laughs> bits. Mm-hmm. So just the ability to keep chaining off of those, mm-hmm. you know, and like close a closure and dot into the next thing. Like yep. It's going to make writing it so much better. Xcode actively fights you when you're writing reactive cocoa. Oh, I'm sure. The, the indenting, the like the auto closing of braces, it doesn't work correctly. I haven't figured that out yet. Maybe I'm just writing it wrong and I'm really confusing the IDE. <laughs> you're, you're holding it wrong. Is what's my, 
my feeling is that this is why Justin doesn't write in Xcode. Mm-hmm. It's because he wants to format it in a certain way where it, it reads really nicely if you can get each operation to, to just kind of march down the left column. Mm-hmm. Xcode does not want to let you do that. Right. I can't get out of Xcode, though. <laughs> There's no way I'm going like, to jump over to Atom and start writing. Yeah. Oh, he is using Atom full-time. Probably. In Vim mode. He, he actually once, at one point, he was using Vim. And I asked him if he had, like, a write-up on how he does that. And he, like, because I have no idea. You know what I mean? Like, I can't, I can't mentally make that jump where I can figure out, like, a good workflow where I'm writing outside of Xcode but then building inside Xcode and running inside Xcode. I don't get it. And he was just like, you just do it. It's like, well, come on, dude. <laughs> um, well, I mean, build from the command line. Just yeah. take a couple minutes and write some scripts and build and run. And yeah, I don't think it would be that bad. I, I'm just way too dependent, not just on code coloring, but my color scheme. Mm-hmm. Like, I use the color scheme to like clue me into as to like what's wrong. And sure, although you know, you start to rely on that less in Swift because your color scheme goes away like every five minutes when source kit crashes and <laughs> well that's his life xcode 7 i'm really 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 hoping it's just gonna like well not be flawless because it's xcode but it'll be stable with swift i want the tools to improve before we talk about that let me jump back and talk about the generic thing because i don't want to forget right that so the whole that like the thing you were talking about about how in Objective C, because Objective C's type system is bullshit, you can <laughs> you can merge two signals that return different types mm-hmm. into one signal that now returns uh, who the hell knows type, right? Generics will prevent that from happening, right? So instead of having just a signal, you have a signal of T, right? So signal uh, like I. I don't think it's named like this, but every time in my head when I see um, uh, braces, the the angle bracket braces brackets, I don't I never remember what's a bracket, which is a brace, but the angle brackets, the you know the the sharp ones. Yeah. Um, when I see like optional bracket t array bracket t dictionary bracket t. I replace it mentally when I'm, when I'm reading that, I replace those brackets with the word of. And some of the types actually in, in the standard library do that. Um, sync, for example, is sync of. Um, I think I've seen generator of. Generator of. So I just make that substitution all the time anyway because I think it's a useful way to think about those. Optional of T. Array of T. Dictionary of T, you know, uh, U. You know what I mean? So optional of string array of string, dictionary of string, integer, you know? So if you look at that same thing with signals, signals can be can be generic based on their return type, right? So what type are they going to send the consumer of the signal? So once that happens, that just locks everything down because now that type can get sent all the way down the chain. So every time you chain it, it can just keep, pulling that T along, which gives you compiler information about like one, it keeps, it makes sure that you're returning the right thing. So you can, you can return the wrong thing from a signal right now, right? Yeah. Like it's just through convention. Uh, So, right. So so if you return a rack signal and 
you know in your head it's supposed to be a, a string, like this weather status thing. There's no compiler-level safety for making sure that you don't return an integer from that, right? Or a Boolean. Got it. Right? Right. Generics, it's there. It's in the type system. And it's in the type system for you at the compiler level. And it's in the type system for the consumer, also at the compiler level. So I know that as a producer of signals, I can't return the wrong type from my signal. And you know as a consumer of signals exactly what type will be returned from that signal. Yep. You yeah, I'm, I mean? I'm, I'm loosely enforcing that now by always updating my block argument to signatures have, to include the type I'm expecting. But that's not, that's not enforcing. That's just – that's that wink, wink, nudge, nudge to, to the Objective-C compiler saying like, I promise you this is a string. And that's why I said loosely. Yeah, it's, for, yeah. it's for me. It's for that when I use this thing, I can autocomplete and use methods because it knows what it's going to be. Right, exactly. But so this actually this actually loops all the way back to this conversation that we had probably about a year ago about API calls. There was a point where I was writing an API client and it had gotten refactored in a way that made sense implementation wise but consuming the api like writing against this api client or this you know this api client object it, it got refactored in a way where every return block was typed as id object so i had to know when i was writing like the compiler didn't help me the type system didn't help me consume the api because I had to know when I hit this API endpoint, what objects am I going to get back? Same thing here, right? Like you can do that for yourself because you know you wrote the production side of the signal and you're also writing the consumption side of the signal. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? But the second you run into a signal that you didn't write, that what you're talking about falls apart because before you can do that, you have to now do research at some level, even if it's just – you know, reading the method name and knowing what the method is, you have to do some research and say, like, what type is this? I need to make sure that I'm casting it to the right type internally. Mm -hmm. Generics is going to solve all of that. It's going to force you. You can't screw it up. You know what I mean? And that's awesome to me. I'm so looking forward to that. That's great. And as you were saying that, I was remembering that like in the first couple of days when I wasn't super sure what was flowing through my signal chains, I would just like stop breakpoint in the subscription block. Right. Be like, what is IDX? Like, <laughs> right, right. Oh, okay. Right, oh, it's I've a location. That. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I'll cast it as a location and let's move on. Yeah, right. Yeah. It's actually – there's a, a very, very similar um, – I just wrote some um, matchers for Nimble that work with Fox, which I think I talked about. Did I talk about Fox on the show? No, I don't even know what Fox is. I saw you mention that in Slack this morning and I didn't, I don't even know what that is. So super briefly, there's this concept called in Haskell, there's a testing framework called quick check, right? Because Haskell is value in value out, everything is value in value out. When you're testing, you typically don't need to test behavior as much as you need to test that properties hold for specific functions. So for example, common example is addition, right? I have a function that adds two numbers together. Mm 
how do you write a unit test for a function that adds two numbers together? Well, you go, okay, I, when I say add one and two, I should expect to have three, right? That mm-hmm. makes sense. But, like, what if you add negative numbers? Now you need to make sure, okay, well, let me see. If I add one and negative one, I have zero. You know what I mean? It's like, okay, well, what if you have, you know, is there an upper bounds to this? You know, can your can your function take super big numbers? Can it take super small numbers? Can it take decimal point numbers? Can it take, you know what I mean? You have to, like, the number of unit tests you have to write around, like, a simple addition function to really test it is astronomical. So the idea behind quick check and things like quick check is that you don't write your tests, you generate your tests. So you say, give me two integers. And for any two integers, a specific property, like in this case, a mathematical property will hold that mathematical property for addition is some can be something simple, right? Like a plus B is the same thing as B plus a, right? That'll make sure that that property of addition is true and is always true. And it just generates – what it will do is it will literally generate thousands of numbers, thousands of number pairs and throw them at your function. And if anything breaks there, it says, hey, it broke for this, these, this number pair. This property that you set up didn't hold true, right? Mm-hmm. You get how that's useful in like a in a strict value in value out kind of thing, right? You know. Mm-hmm. So Fox is quick check for Objective C and Swift, which is kind of crazy, but that's what it is. It's it's kind of awesome. So as a part of Runes, one of the things I did with Runes when I was really kind of going off the deep end was I implemented all of the functor, applicative, and monadic laws as test suites for optional and array don't need to get into those but those are just laws right so those are properties i say that when i do this crazy monadic operation it should be the exact same thing as doing this other monadic operation and enforcing these laws means that monads and functors and applicative functors behave the way you expect them to and so will behave commonly uh, across all types that conform to those type classes right yep bam quick check (laughs) so that's so that's what so that's what fox does fox lets me say you know for all optional values do this crazy i'll link to these test suites because they're kind of i think they're it's by far the craziest shit i've ever written (laughs) but uh for for any optional do this crazy thing and this should hold true and it my test suite literally takes like three and a half minutes for 18 tests because it just throws thousands and thousands and thousands of tests you know because it's generating new tests for all these but one of the one of the problems not problems one of the minor minor annoyances that sure why not i'll solve it was that there weren't matchers for nimble to work with these property values so I had to use Fox directly and do like Fox.assert property instead of being able to do something like expect property to hold, mm. you know? Mm-hmm. So I just wanted to change that syntax back over to Nimble's syntax. So one of the cool things was I had never written a Nimble matcher before. This is getting back to generics, I promise. Oh. Um, I had never dealt with Nimble matchers before. I had written some matchers for Expecta and for Kiwi a while back and those were fairly complicated there was a lot of setup stuff that i had to do and kind of a bunch of other crap 
Writing Nimble Matchers was insanely easy because of generics. So the way you write a Nimble Matcher is you just create a public function that can take an argument. It doesn't have to take an argument, but it returns a matcher func, which is a type defined inside Nimble. And that matcher func is generic. And the type that you associate with it is the type that you expect to be passed in to expect. So if you look at the way um, Nimble looks, you do like expect parens value dot two parens matcher hold, right? Or mm-hmm. B or B true could go inside the equal part, right? All okay. of these Nimble things, but so that type of what you put inside the expect function is defined by what type the matcher declares itself as. So in this case, it, this will make sense. In, in this case, the hold function that I defined, which is a matcher, returns a type of a non-nil matcher func. So it says this, this is a non-optional. You can't pass nil to this. Non-nil matcher func of fox generator. So if I pass something that isn't a fox generator into expect, once I write out hold, it's now a comp- compiler error because it says, I don't know what to do. This type doesn't make sense for this matcher. Mm. You know what I mean? But that also means that inside my matcher, inside this hold function, which keep in mind has no attachment to anything else at this point. There, it, there's, it's just a function. It's a standalone function. This entire class, this entire library basically – is 16 lines, the entire thing. And that's including two imports. But so inside the matcher itself, I do, I get, so I say return non-nil matcher func, and then it has a block that it uses for creation. So non-nil matcher matcher func, and I get an actual expression, which is the expression that I passed into expect, and then a failure message. So I can modify the failure message however I want. But I also get this actual expression. So I can say things like let property equal actual expression dot evaluate. So it runs that the expression passed into expect and knows that property is now a fox generator. And I can move forward from there. Okay. I think I get that. It's weird because it's backwards. So you're talking – so reactive cocoa, those generics – to start from the bottom, right? You say, I'm sending you this. Nimble matchers work the opposite way. By defining the the thing to say, like, this should be true, the be true matcher or the hold matcher in this case or equal other thing matcher, right? Those tell the expect function what type it should be getting. So it works back up the line. Uh, okay. It, it comes down to, I can guarantee you this is what I'm sending versus I can guarantee this is what I need to receive. Yes. Got yes. It. It's a lot like the return type, type inference stuff that Argo relies on so heavily, which is also bonkers. Um, but don't need to get into that now. Mm-hmm. Anyway, on that note, yeah. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> been an hour i was about to talk about tuples but uh i think we should probably wrap it cool up. yeah we should 
Show notes for this episode are to be found at buildphase.fm slash 70. As always, we'd like to hear from you, so email us at buildphase at thoughtbot.com or reach out to us on Twitter at buildphase. And as always, we appreciate ratings and reviews on iTunes. All right, man. I'll, uh, I'll talk to you later. Good chat. Later.